Good afternoon. Welcome to Cato's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Thank you for coming, and thanks to those of you who are tuning in online. Uh, I'm Gene Healy, uh, Cato's Senior Vice President for Policy, and I'm going to be Master of Ceremonies for today's conversation about Arizona's free market approach to regulatory policy with a particular focus on health care reform. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us today Governor Doug Ducey of the great state of Arizona. The 2018 edition of Cato's Freedom in the 50 States report notes that on regulatory policy, Arizona is laudably one of the best in the country in terms of anti-cronyism. And that business climate has made the Grand Canyon State routinely a leader in net migration from other states. It's one of the most popular places for Americans to relocate and pursue the American dream. Uh, Governor Ducey knows something about that himself as an Arizona transplant. He was born in Toledo, Ohio, and moved to Arizona in 1982 to go to college at ASU. Uh, he uh, is a, a had a successful career in the private sector as, uh, among other things, the CEO of Cold Stone Creamery, the ice cream chain, from 1995 to 2007. If you've been there, you know that it's the good stuff, the super premium with over 12% butter fat. <laughs> in 2010, he was elected uh, state treasurer of Arizona, replacing the previous office holder, Dean Martin. There's a detail that made me do a double take when I, when I read it on the Wikipedia page. Uh, and in 2015, he became the 23rd governor of Arizona re and was reelected to that office in 2018 by an even wider margin than in the first go-round. Among his accomplishments as governor, he's turned uh, what was a, a billion-dollar deficit that he inherited uh, into a billion-dollar budget surplus, uh, signed the largest income tax in, income tax cut rather uh, in state history. Uh, signed a major school choice expansion bill in 2017. Has made more judicial appointments than any governor in Arizona history. Uh, among those appointments uh, uh, was uh, the. Libertarian and longtime friend of Cato, uh, Clint Bullock, to the Arizona Supreme Court. Um, in 2019, uh, major occupational licensure reform. The first state, Arizona became the first state to provide universal, universal recognition of occupational licenses from, from other states, uh, making it easier for people from other states to to work and do business in Arizona. And this year, the governor signed the first in the nation, first in the nation telehealth reform, uh, reducing unnecessary in-person uh, visits and cutting red tape and expanding healthcare access for Arizonans. Uh, and joining us for this conversation is a, uh, someone with a detailed knowledge and on the ground experience uh, in these key areas. That's uh, Dr. Jeff Singer, uh, Cato Institute Senior Fellow in Health Policy Studies uh, 
at Dr. For Liberty in the, uh, is his Twitter handle. Uh, Jeff is not only a policy expert, but a, uh, a practitioner himself, a, a general surgeon for going on 40 years, a fellow of the American College of, of Surgeons. Now, the, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, first do no harm, isn't just a sound principle in healthcare, but in public policy in general. Uh, and Jeff has a particular interest in harm reduction approaches to healthcare, to healthcare policy, to drug policy, and most recently uh, in our approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. I highly recommend an essay that Jeff wrote recently for Cato's Pandemics and Policy series. Um, it argues that, uh, that COVID-19 is going to become endemic like the flu, but the good news is that with uh, spectacular, spectacularly effective vaccines, it's as manageable as the flu, and it's not an excuse, uh, it should not become an excuse for uh, permanent mask mandates or otherwise coercively restructuring American life in pursuit of a zero-risk society. Uh, like Governor Ducey, Dr. Singer is an Arizona transplant himself. He practiced, he's practiced medicine in the state since 1981. And uh, Governor, since he's your constituent, I guess you have to listen to him. Uh, we will be taking questions online uh, as well as from the audience, uh, it, uh, including uh, from Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Please use the hashtag CatoHealth. Uh, and as I said, I, I want this to be a conversation, uh, so feel free to, uh, to talk amongst, you, amongst yourselves. Don't wait for me to, to set it up. But I will ask the, the first question. Uh, I, and I'd like us to start with uh, telehealth reform. Uh, early on in the pandemic, it, it, you know, it occurred to me when this became an issue, that it seemed crazy that we were, uh, that even before this once in a century pandemic, uh, we were having people pack into crowded waiting rooms for unnecessary visits during even flu season. Um, and this is one of those things that, you know, where uh, COVID-19 was like a stress test for uh, a lot of our practices and, uh, you know, pointed out a lot of areas where we, uh, had unnecessary regulation. Um, uh, so uh, Governor Ducey, uh, by executive order, started to loosen some of those restrictions. And then earlier this year, uh, you signed legislation making those changes permanent. Um, can you, uh, let's start off with you explain the, uh, the thinking behind that reform and, uh, you know, what, if any, resistance from entrenched interests you, you, you faced along the way with that. Sure, Gene. Thank you very much, Gene. Thanks, Jeff. And I want to say thanks to all the scholars and fellows at Cato for the good work you do. We read it with great interest in the state of Arizona and have gone out of our way where we see a, a good fit or something that can provide a solution or a, a better environment for our citizen we've tried to uh, apply it and it's it's hard to talk about any silver lining during the pandemic because it's just been such a brutal 18 plus months on all of us but we were challenged to 
balance lives and protect lives in our state and try to balance that along with, with livelihoods. And the idea of telehealth and how we could get people in front of a physician or in, internist with as little friction as, as possible was one of the things that came through COVID. And we had some really great stories from citizens in our state. A mom who lived in Tucson with a severely autistic daughter that for each appointment would have to drive up to, to Phoenix Children's Hospital, which is more than a 90-minute drive with no traffic, that was able to get her child in front of some of the best physicians in the world you know, over her iPad, get the, the care and comfort and prescription that she needed for her daughter. And then, of course, the people that were sick or not feeling well or just coming down with the flu or wanted that initial connection with a physician on what their situation was, was brought to light through executive order under health, public health emergencies during COVID and something that we thought was a good idea going forward. We didn't want to see it go away. There were all kinds of good stories of people in out counties and rural areas that were able to access some of the finest doctors in the world in our more urban areas. So we've started to move that through our legislature. We're able to get a majority vote in both chambers. And we've done so much reform uh, to open up these markets that, of course, there are the special interests out there and folks that are going to push back and want to protect medicine as they see it sometimes as a guild that uh, should, should not have this type of competition. But I, because we've had these successes along the way, I think we're able to point to them and, and to get the votes and overcome the opposition that, that happens as you're trying to eliminate or clear regulations. You know, Governor, um, when this was being considered in, in Arizona, I spoke to legislators on both sides of the aisle, and it seemed most of the response I was getting, regardless of which side of the aisle they were on, was this is a no-brainer. What, you know, what's not to like about it? When I testified uh, in front of Idaho's legislature remotely on a sim, they, they were considering similar legislation. Virtually every one of the uh, professional associations, the Idaho Medical Association, Dental Association, you name it. Uh, they were all for uh, legislation that would allow uh, the practitioners to get paid more for telehealth services within state, but they were very resistant to the idea of allowing out-of-state healthcare practitioners to provide healthcare to their residents. Uh, how did, I didn't see that kind of resistance in Arizona. In fact, I, I asked the uh, the lobbyists for the Arizona Medical Association where they stood on the bill and they said they were supporting it, which I was pleasantly surprised to learn that. How, did, how do you describe, the, explain the difference? Well, I can't really speak on another state legislature or the power of lobbyists or special interest in other states. I came from the private sector. I mean, I had never been down to the state capitol. There were no tax incentives for chocolate-dipped waffle cones. I was busy building my business and raising my family. So I think not having those relationships in the political class or among the lobbyists or the special interests allowed me to, in, in many ways, of course, listen, but not be beholden to them in, in any way, shape, or, or form. These have been good policies that have provided opportunity for the people 
of the state of Arizona. And yeah, I ran on that type of, of governance and actually called out the special interests in my first inauguration speech and state of the state. So I think they, they knew that they were in for a different type of governor. You know, a thing I've noticed also during your tenure is uh, there's been a really good reform in the area of scope of practice, which is another area that usually gets resistance from entrenched incumbents. Yes. So uh, you may be aware that I made a lot of enemies out of my anesthesiologist that I work with when I uh, had an op-ed in the uh, Arizona Republic supporting your allowing uh, CRNAs, nurse anesthetists, to practice independent of doctors. Um, and generally speaking, you've been, uh, Arizona has been among the leaders in expanding the scope of practice so that different healthcare professionals could practice to the, to the extent to which they are trained. Um, one, uh, one area I think we could still do further good on is uh, allowing, um, taking full advantage of pharmacists pharmacist training. We learned during this pandemic, for example, you know, they're performing COVID tests and giving us vaccinations. So why can't we allow them, for example, to perform flu swab tests and prescribe Tamiflu, which could treat flu early? Right now, they're not allowed to do that, but they could do it for COVID. Um, recently, uh, Arizona became, I think, the 17th state to allow pharmacists to give out uh, birth control pills. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has uh, been saying for like 20 years that this doesn't this should be over the counter, but for political reasons, it's, it's remains prescription only. Uh, I would have, uh, in, in the case of Arizona, it's by standing orders. So the, uh, it, it could only, the pharmacists give it only if a health policy director uh, gives a standing order, a direct, you know, director of public health on it county or state level, I think better would be to allow them to, to prescribe it because that way, it, it, you know, it's like an executive order. A standing order kind of always lasts as long as the person's in charge. And another thing that we could do is have uh, pharmacists prescribe pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. For HIV. Uh, they're already allowed to do that now in Colorado and in California. I think that will go a long way towards fighting the HIV epidemic. Well, a lot of the ideas you're bringing up, I think, are, are interesting ideas and certainly ones we'd want to do more homework on and, and quite possibly pursue. You're, you're right in terms of how we've gotten rid of regulations, how we've expanded the scope of service. I'm not from the medical profession, but I didn't realize how many anesthesiologists I had in my personal network as we expanded that the CN, CRNA uh, protocol. And uh, the idea of this came through our legislature this past session that they could prescribe birth control at the pharmacy level. I think there's a, a lot more we can do on those fronts. When I came into office, I really looked at states that I knew were already doing a good job and just wanted to take those model practices or legislation and apply it in the state of Arizona. Now we're in a position where we've accomplished a lot of that. And of course, we want to continue to move the ball down court, but we don't have the same ready examples around the country of, of what policy is, is working out in the marketplace and uh, has, has been uh, thoroughly vetted. If I could suggest uh, at the risk of of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be presumptuous, but another reform in this area uh, that we do have experience on five state levels, uh, Iowa, Illinois, 
um, Idaho, New Mexico, and Louisiana allow doctorate-level clinical psychologists who've had training in psychopharmacology uh, to prescribe psychiatric meds uh, in most states, including Arizona. Uh, and, of course, not every uh, doctorate-level psych psychologist wants to do this or feels qualified, but those who are, if they feel that a patient needs a psychiatric med to help in the talk therapy, they have to send the patient to either a psychiatrist or a primary care doctor to write the prescription, which is an extra expense, uh, an extra visit, time off work. And in, in the cases of primary care doctors, which would happen more in a rural area, sometimes the psychologist knows more about the medication and the dose and how to monitor it monitor it than the primary care doctor does and has to tell them about it. So uh, I, I would hope we could look into uh, exp expanding the scope of practice of doctorate-level clinical psychologists so, so that they can uh, save patients this extra expense and, and an extra inconvenience. We've been able to, to eliminate in Arizona 2,700 regulations. When we came into office, I said to my team, how many regulations are there in the state of Arizona? And nobody could get the answer. It actually took about 18 months. We finally found 11,000 regulations at the state level. Uh, so now, some regulations are needed, you know, for public health or public safety. But if you think about that, that 2,700 regulations that we were able to eliminate have resulted in a $150 million tax cut to, to the people of Arizona without costing the general fund one penny. So the, some of the thoughts and suggestions that you're making are things that we want to dig into and, uh, and, and better understand. At the same time, I want to make sure that we support regulations that are there for a reason. When you talk about prescription meds, uh, we have seen some things that can go wrong in that world, and I concern sometimes about over-prescribing. Uh, but but I, I get uh, the objective of, of the presentation. What about uh, the occupational licensure, licensure reform, uh, you know, in 2019? I mean, this is a, an area where you're dealing with a, a, lot, a lot wider range of entrenched interests than uh, just in the medical profession. And, you know, it, it happened before the pandemic, so you didn't have the, uh, you know, the crisis atmosphere that might allow uh, broader reforms. How did that uh, come about, and what uh, sort of resistance did you uh, did did you face to to that reform? So Arizona was the first state in the nation to pass universal recognition of occupational licensing. We figured if you were uh, able to to hang drywall or had some other license in another state, we were actually going to believe that your government had done it right and allow you to come work in Arizona. Now, you have to remember that in Arizona, 72% of the adults were born somewhere else. So it's a very welcoming, very inviting place that continues to have rapid growth from all over the, the country. We, I sometimes say we're Chicago's favorite suburb, and Midwesterners often find a, a home in our state. And we had more jobs available than we had people to work them. 
So we didn't want this, this infrastructure uh, of, of bureaucracy that was put in front of people to keep them from, from working. On this, of course, we had some of the outside interests, the usual suspects that didn't want to see this happen. But this was also something that we had to sell within our, our own conference. There were some of the uh, debates were that if we make it easier to do business in Arizona for people that are moving here, that won't be fair to the Arizonan who's leaving to go to another state. And I had to refocus people's uh, interest on what we were doing in our state to make it the most competitive, dynamic, attractive place to live, work, and scale a business. So we were able to pass that. We've been able to have 3,500 folks move to the state of Arizona and begin earning a living immediately because their license is in good standing in the state that they came from. Now, while I'm proud that Arizona was the first state in which to do this, I'd love to see 49 other states follow. I think we just need to take down these obstacles that get in the way of people going out and, and finding work, applying their degree or knowledge. And you see some of these um, obstacles in terms of the amount of time it takes to become a, a, a barber or uh, some of these other professions. I mean, how many times does somebody go back to the same person for a bad haircut? Right. Um, so we, we, we've done our best to, to clear those obstacles while continuing to be responsible. In fact, I think something like nine other states have copied Arizona, either completely copied or to, to you know, a great degree, and they're as diverse as New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Montana and Missouri. So uh, um, Arizona's really um, started something going with that. Along those lines, I know Dr. Hey, can I give one comment there to anybody that's listening and wants to know how to apply this in, in their state? There, there are real obstacles out there that can stop you. This is the broadest possible reform, I mean, universal recognition of occupational licensing. And if you can't get there, the best place to start is with military spouses. The military spouses are moving about eight every 18 months, and oftentimes the trailing spouse who is a, a teacher or a nurse or a CPA or a cosmetologist has to start at square one to be recertified. Uh, everyone wants to support the men and women that are in the United States military. That's a much easier reform to pass if you can't get the larger one. And then I think our innate, innate desire for fairness says, once that's working, why wouldn't we extend that, that same right to all of our citizens? I'm actually sort of gobsmacked to learn that my home state in New Jersey is, I am uh, too. Well, yeah, I wasn't and, expecting that. And it's interesting you say New Jersey because... Um, they, New Jersey did something that it kind of petered out. It was a COVID-related response, but they almost were onto something. Um, this this occupation universal occupation licensing form also re, uh, pertains to physicians. So, um, but uh, there's one problem, uh, and we have uh, we have a labor shortage in, in healthcare, um, and. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and all of the European countries, they have uh, uh, a provision for when you have, for example, a physician who's graduated medical school, completed postgraduate training, got licensed in their country, and has years of experience. In the United States, every state licensing law is pretty, they're close to identical. And if 
a person like that wanted to come to the United States to become a doctor, um, they'd be required to repeat their entire residency program all over again, even if they've been out in practice for 10 years. And uh, I, I, there's story after story of, you know, experienced surgeons who are working as ambulance drivers, for example. Yes. So what they have in these other countries, and I think this is another way Arizona could lead. New Jersey did this partly during the pandemic as an emergency measure. Uh, the governor said that any doctor who uh, has at least, I think it was five years out of residency licensed experience uh, who wants to come to New Jersey to help with the emergency will be allowed to do so at certain designated centers where they're kind of overseeing. I think one was at the, the medical school. Uh, and then when the pandemic was over, that ended. Uh, but the, all these other countries I mentioned, they have what's called provisional licensing, where if, if a doctor wants to move to their province or country with, those, with that kind of background, um, they're kind of uh, given almost like an apprenticeship uh, with a supervising uh, doctor who answers to the licensing board. And then after a given period of time, let's say six months, a year, if they're given the all clear, then they can be granted a full license. And some countries or provinces say, but for the first three years, you have to practice in an underserved area, and then you can move wherever you want. I think that should be something that we could look at in Arizona. Uh, like I say, New Jersey almost flirted with it, and then it, they kind of backed away. But well, it, it makes sense to me. We are going to need more doctors with the continual aging of the baby boomers, what we have in so many of our rural areas, and it makes uh, sense that you'd have some kind of skilled base testing that could validate uh, even a, some type of an apprenticeship with a practicing doctor that could, could say that this is someone who's skilled in, in this profession. And uh, I'm certain, like, uh, we trust the governments of other states in their certification on licensing. There must be that same type of ability to look at other countries that have the same standards of excellence around medicine and public health. Uh, serving as the chief executive officer of a state during a once-in-a-century pandemic is uh, uh, an unexpected challenge. Uh, what, you know, what adjustments have, have you had to make along the way, and what, uh, how have you treated treated uh, the issue differently as the pandemics evolved? Uh, say. Uh, 2020 to 21 with uh, the arrival of vaccines that r radically reduced the risk? Well, COVID-19, without a doubt, changed everything in our country and around the, the world. And there was a, a real, in, in the beginning, of what I would say a fog of the pandemic in late February and early March. So, of course, we listened to uh, experts in medicine and public health. I was very fortunate to have a director of health services, Dr. Kara Christ. She was an epidemiologist, uh, infectious epidemiologist, had dealt with Ebola, measles, H1N1 before this. And right for, from the get-go uh, in our first briefing, uh, I said, how does this feel in relationship to the other epidemics that you've dealt with, and she said this one feels different, meaning we were able to handle those ones in rather short order. So we took COVID-19 serious 
right from the get-go. Of course, we were working closely with the coronavirus task force, which was headed up by Mike Pence here in Washington, D.C. And once we got the facts on who was most vulnerable and um, who was most at risk for this, meaning 65 years and older with an underlying health condition, people inside our, our nursing homes and long-term care facilities, we made the appropriate decisions to protect those people. Uh, we went out of our way to protect lives in the state of Arizona, uh, and we also balanced it with, with livelihoods. We were very targeted in our decision-making and made the best possible decisions for our state, given the facts on the ground on what was happening in Arizona. Out, out east here, I mean, you were hit first. We all saw what was happening in New York. Charlie Baker is one of the members of the Republican Governors Association, and we were having uh, twice-weekly conference calls on what was happening in the different states, how we were handling it. And I just recall what Massachusetts was going through when it didn't even seem that the virus had yet arrived in Arizona. So we tried to make decisions appropriately. Yeah, in fact, uh, I liked the fact that when it hit the fan in Arizona, it was around June or July of 2020. Uh, June. It was June. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you uh, actually had a light hand compared to a lot of other governors. You allowed a lot more of the private sector to make decisions on the ground based on what was going on, and particularly in the hospitals, for example. Uh, the individual hospital systems were um, adjusting uh, what kind of patients they were seeing and moving patients around within their hospital systems, uh, back in, asking us uh, surgeons to hold off on certain things but it was much. It was calibrated to what was going on on the at the margin on a local level. I think I think that was uh, that was a good thing. Well, we we were targeted. Like I said, when we had the facts on how to protect people, we we acted on those facts. But places like manufacturing and uh, construction and outdoor activities, these were places where responsible individuals could easily socially distance, could put a, a mask regimen in place if, if necessary. So there was really no need for government in intervention on that. We wanted to make sure that people had the, the data and information to make the best decisions. I'll never forget where I was when my we met uh, uh, in March. Our first executive order, I think, was March 11th, and it was basically to shut down visits to our nursing homes and long-term care facilities. But I had assembled all the leaders in that community, and they basically knew that they were vulnerable. Uh, they wanted to sh shut down that uh, uh, ability to visit, and I asked them why they, why they wouldn't. And they said, well, it's much more helpful if it comes from you because a lot of people are going to be upset on this. And we had the data. I knew the decision needed to be made one way or another, and we'd already declared a public health emergency. So with their support and advocacy, we instituted that. And the next day, my, my mom called me and said that she couldn't get in to see my grandmother and she was pretty hot about it. And I said, well, th that's by design. And then as we learned some of the things that happened around the nation, uh, that was likely a very good preliminary decision to protect those people. But it, all, none of these 
decisions were easy. Um, we, you wanted to do, do them with information, um, but we saw others that had a, a, a much heavier hand or a much more blanketed uh, approach. We, we wanted to be more, more specific and targeted. You know, some, some governors are, uh, as you know, uh, either by executive order, usually by executive order, prohibiting private businesses, whether they be cruise lines or whatever, from requiring that their employees be vaccinated. And you haven't done that. And uh, I, 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 I'm sure you agree that when it comes to private uh, sector, there's one thing to order the government uh, uh, you know, policy regarding vaccination and government employees, but private employees are private. <laughs> it, it greatly concerns me when the government begins to get in bed with business or business gets in, in bed with, with government. So we have uh, instituted in, in Arizona through, through statute that there will be no vaccine mandate uh, for government entities inside our state, but I'm going to leave the private sector to the private sector. And that's good. Seems to be a line that uh, a lot of governors are having trouble walking, right, uh, right. but a sensible one. How is the issue of uh, masking of school children playing out in, in Arizona? In Arizona, anyone that wants to wear a mask can wear a mask. There's no prohibition on masks in the state of Arizona. We really thought that this should be left to the closest form of local control for the child, and that's the parent. And mm -hmm. if a parent wants a kid to wear a mask, they're going to have a mask on. We do have some outliers that we believe are in violation of the law and are instituting mask mandates. That's going to be decided in the courts. Okay. I'd like to if we segue to harm reduction. Um, first of all, um, I'd like to thank you for signing the uh, syringe services bill that was passed, I believe it was May, and also right around the same time, uh, a bill allowing fentanyl test strips to be taken off of the list of drug paraphernalia so they can, can be uh, handed out. And, and this, as, as you know, the 83% of opioid-related yes. overdose deaths now are fentanyl. And so this is a, a good step in, in the direction of harm reduction. Um, and along those lines, I, I, I'd like to, you to consider uh, revisiting the policy we have right now regarding uh, pain prescriptions. As you, I'm sure you're aware, there's been a big, uh, we've seen lots of stories about pain patients having their, chronic pain patients having their medications tapered rapidly, cut off. Uh, there's been an increase in uh, mental anguish, suicide, particularly in the VA system. A recent study showed 75% increase in suicides among veterans who've had their rapid tapering of, of opioids. And back a few years ago, uh, well, in 2016, the CDC came out with guidelines that they themselves said were based on very limited data and uh, should be taken with a grain of salt. And 36 states, including Arizona, use those guidelines to kind of pass laws requiring, you know, putting limits on how, how many opioids could be prescribed in certain situations. I think one of the lessons we've learned in these last 20 months of the COVID pandemic is that particularly when it comes to biological science, um, the, you know, there's, there's so much variability, so much nuance, and we're learning and evolving our knowledge every day. The CDC uh, is in a process of uh, 
revising their gui guidelines. They're five years old, and they've sent out a, uh, an advisory saying people are using our guidelines the wrong way. The FDA just had a two-day uh, uh, workshop in August uh, studying whether these morphine milligram equivalents are useless or mean anything. So I would like you to consider, um, doctors have been, as you know, terrified of prescribing opioids. They see these, uh, a new story of SWAT teams breaking down a doctor's office and they say, forget it, I'm getting away from prescribing pain pills and the patients are suffering. I think we should consider uh, uh, taking, removing those statutes allowed because you can't codify the practice of medicine. That should be overseen by the licensing boards. And we should also make it that if, if law enforcement sees something that looks funny, the way a doctor is prescribing, then the proper course is to report it to the licensing board because that's a standard of care issue. It's not a crime issue. And I think that will go a long way towards uh, removing the chilling effect that's been placed on doctors. Because uh, patients are, you know, legitimate patients are actually really getting hurt in this thing. Well, some of what, what you're describing would be a, a misinterpretation of any legislation that was passed in Arizona. Now, now, no law is perfect, or very few laws are perfect, and there can and are unintended benefits. That's why we're very careful as we work with the legislature and what legislation that we sign. But I think the Wall Street Journal called Arizona's legislation that was first in the nation is, is the model legislation as to how to deal with the opioid epidemic. And anyone that was under a protocol or a regime that was existing was not affected by that. Uh, but we did have some real bad actors, uh, pill mills, uh, etc. Uh, an opioid epidemic, not just in our state, but across the nation. Uh, as we navigate through that, if there's something that needs to be adjusted or reformed, that's certainly something I'm, I'm open-minded to. But the things that you started out with in terms of a complement around the fentanyl strips are also with some of the things that are happening at our southern border and being laced into to other products that are on the illegal side of the uh, equation. So I think that we are going to always err on the side of, of liberty and limited government in the state of Arizona, but we also have to address what was a very real issue that was out of hand in the 2015, 16, 17 timeframe, and I think we've made uh, some real headway there. But right now, I mean, you, just like we don't have laws on the books saying how to prescribe medication for high blood pressure or for diabetes. We really shouldn't have laws on the books telling in writing, you know, in casting in stone how a doctor should treat pain. Uh, and if, if a doctor looks like uh, he or she is doing something that looks a little out of, out of the ordinary that may be inappropriate, there's a, there's, there, a, there's a number of issues to this, though. If you remember, the Academy actually added a fourth vital sign and that vital sign was pain, and then that became part of the regimen yeah. around Medicaid and, and Medicare performance and reimbursement. So you might have doctors today that uh, are nervous about if they're prescribing too much. You were having doctors before that were nervous that they weren't prescribing enough. So I think that the, the legislation that we put out there was common sense legislation. And I agree with you that that should not be dictated through statute. But there were real bad actors, people that we call drug dealers, when they don't wear a white coat or stand behind a pharmacy window. And typically those people wind up in jail.
but those things should be standard of care. Issues. Well, that's, unless you're out in the street selling. Like I said, it was a crisis, and we acted on it. Well, uh, you've gotten quite a few suggestions for your constituent here today. Uh, what's next uh, for in terms of regulatory reform uh, going forward in, in Arizona? Well, I think when you look at uh, where we are right now in terms of an economy that's just, just booming right now, and uh, we've had wins like Taiwan Semiconductor, choose the state of Arizona, Intel, make its larger ever investments to bring that semiconductor ecosystem, people like Lucid and Nikola uh, bringing electric cars and hydrogen electric vehicles and trucks and the battery regime ar around that. Our economy's been transformed and diversified. When I ran for office in 2014, some friends of mine in the business community said, I'll support you and I love Arizona and I'm not leaving. I intend to retire here, but my son or daughter who has graduated from you pick the college can't apply their degree here and so they can't make a, a life here. I haven't heard that in five years. Now we have more jobs available than people to fill them, and they are high-tech, high-paying jobs, along with, of course, jobs in, inside the service sector and entrepreneurial positions. So the idea of eliminating what's unnecessary, actually taking things off the books that are unneeded, is, is going to be more of our mindset. Whenever there's a hidden tax behind this regulation or a law that may have not been uh, properly crafted or has outlived its, its necessary time on the books, I think our would be the best thing we can do to solidify the success that we're enjoying right now in Arizona and not slow the momentum of a dynamic, uh, attractive economy going forward. Anything else, Jeff? Or, no, uh, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, the questions coming in? Uh, yeah, let's, we can turn to uh, audience questions. And we'll, uh, remember, we'll also be taking uh, questions online. Use the hashtag Cato Health, please. Uh, wait for the microphone uh, to come to you. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you that you're supposed to leave your mask on while you are uh, taking questions. You should treat this as, at least as seriously, this mandate, treat it at least as seriously as our mayor does. <laughs> uh, speaking of opportunities for further reform, Governor, what you th I wonder what you think about the idea of letting Arizona residents purchase insurance, health insurance, that is licensed by uh, uh, U.S. territories, so not just across state lines, but across territorial lines as well. As you well know, the Affordable Care Act uh, uh, contains a lot of expensive regulations that have driven up the cost of health insurance, caused it to double, triple for many people. Congress is throwing subsidies in the tens of thousands of dollars at people making six figures because Obamacare coverage is so expensive. But the Obama administration uh, decreed almost, I guess it'd be about seven years ago now, that all those regulations don't apply in U.S. territories. They decreed that? They, 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 can, they, they can decree? They interpreted the law to... Uh, to say that uh, those that community rating and guaranteed issue and um, essential health benefits, medical uh, minimum medical loss ratios, and all these expensive regulations do not apply to health insurance plans licensed in U.S. territories. And there you have some major insurance companies, Humana, the Blues, selling insurance. 
What do you think about letting Arizona residents purchase insurance licensed by those territories because they could avoid a lot of those unwanted regulatory costs, make insurance more affordable? And uh, it's a it's a very analogous to the universal licensing recognition law that you passed because it really would tear down a barrier to trade between the states. So this idea actually came up in the green room before we came out to have this discussion. And I may have misunderstood, but I always thought this was part of the Obamacare uh, regime and protocol that was put forward nationally and precluded states from doing this. So the devil's always going to be in the details, but I love the idea of breaking open the marketplace, of having more options, uh, more good actors in there, and more ability for collaboration of people coming together in a cooperative way to, to lower cost and, and provide care. We've got to bring some of those dynamics back to the national healthcare scene. We've looked to Washington, D.C. for much too long for what healthcare policy is, and I think that Arizona is a shining example of if you let a state have some latitude, it can be a laboratory of democracy and demonstrate what can work better. And I think you identified one of those policies and uh, universal recognition of occupational licensing. So I, I want to dig into this more, and you may see that as part of the legislative agenda in 2022. So, Governor, we also have a couple of questions coming from online, because uh, the title, obviously, of our event is Happier and Healthier, and you've had a robust discussion a bit about health. Shifting to uh, the concept of just happiness in Arizona, uh, one of our online questioners asks, um, outside of health care, what was the biggest policy success you felt that was accomplished helping small businesses? Because large businesses were able to uh, go through some of the restrictions that other states and the feds enacted. What has been done that you are most proud of for small businesses in Arizona? So we had out-of-state actors come into Arizona in the last election cycle, and I think wrote very deceptive language to our citizens that said they were going to put a 3.5% surcharge on the top earners in our state. Somehow that cleared legal muster to go to the ballot, but what it meant to the taxpayer is that you would take the people that were our small business owners and were paying 4.5% at the top rate and make it 8%. Well, 8% is the equivalent of New York State or Washington, D.C. or Bernie Sanders, Vermont. It's a 77% tax increase. They were able to sneak that over the finish line uh, by 1.7%. In 2020, we went into the legislative cycle to fix that. Now, we have to respect the will of the vo voters, and of course, we did, but we were able to, through legislation, through leadership in both our House and our Senate, I'm thankful for Speaker Rusty Bowers and President Karen Fan and our House and Senate, respectively, to bring Arizona's tax code back to what it was before this tax was passed at the ballot and actually provide a tax cut to every single citizen in our state. And then with a further ruling upon challenge at the Supreme Court, it appears today that Arizona will have the largest tax cut in state history and the lowest flat tax of 2.5% across the board. 
So right now, Arizona is in a great spot to continue to grow for businesses, to be able to thrive. And, and uh, Gene talked about when I came into office, we had a $1 billion deficit. This last year, through pandemic and recession, we were sitting on a $4 billion surplus because of the decisions, difficult decisions, of tightening our belt and shrinking our government in that first year. So we were able to give $2 billion of it back to the citizen and the small business owner and pay down $2 billion worth of debt. Arizona is very healthy for the future going forward. Hi. Um, my question is, we, we're at a point where so many of us can't trust our government, especially our federal government. And I don't want you to take this personally. I know you're doing the best you can. We have Florida doing the best they can. Um, I'm from Virginia. But um, what do you think about the fact that we deserve the truth? We have 545 people between the, the um, executive branch, the judiciary, and the um, legislature making these decisions for us. How would you feel like if, especially with COVID, with these mandates, and now so many people in these small communities are losing their jobs, well, we have, um, well, we all know we have these stadiums full of people. You're sitting up here without a mask. I have to wear a mask. And I have no one around. That's, a, that's as a result and of what your mayor says to do. I understand. I, yes. I, I said don't take any of this personally. It's not, I'm not. Um, but the way we take back our government for the people is through the grand jury. And the grand jury is the fourth arm of government. And even Antonius Scalia stated that nobody owns it. It's not mentioned in any of the three articles. And so well, as far as when we feel there's corruption going on, we feel there's an unfairness. We feel like no one should be going into our bank account for $600. We don't feel like a police officer should get, um, lose his job. Having special grand juries throughout the United States that the people put together, not people's grand juries, the ones that meet in our courts. Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry. So um, the question I have for you, would you allow that in Arizona? And would well, you support that? So first I want to say you, you do deserve the truth. You should demand the truth. I think that we should have the truth and doing the right thing be our North Star for those of us that are in elective office. And I think, you know, I'm leading the Republican Governors Association this, this cycle. Uh, the RGA is the only majority Republican conference in the country. We have 27 Republican governors, and I'm thankful to every one of them because without the Republican governors, this country would have been completely shut down. It was the Republican governors that showed that you could protect lives and livelihoods, that you could have targeted decisions rather than letting lockdown be the definition of leadership, which is what the media co-opted through that. So I'm not aware of the policy prescription that you're talking about. I just want to say that elections have consequences. And if you look at the states, I don't think there's ever been a greater contrast between Republican-led states and Democrat-led states in terms of how they handled the public health crisis, where their economies and small businesses are, that their kids are inside of classrooms, in front of teachers that are learning in a learning-type environment, that there's a real differentiator there. So um, I remember a time not so long ago when you couldn't go to New York City because it was dangerous to walk around. 
And then they made a different decision on who their mayor was, and they prioritized law enforcement and quality of life and victims' rights and protection of the citizen. And New York has seemed to slip back uh, back into those years of, of the 1970s. And I see that around here, the, the, the cradle of liberty as, as well. So I'm not familiar with the, the prescription that you're providing, but I do think that you could elect better leaders, especially at the big city mayoral level. If I could just add something to this. Um, there's too much of a tendency for everyone to look to Washington for solutions. And the beautiful thing about our federal system is that we have 50 laboratories of the, actually 50 plus one DC laboratories of democracy. And um, a lot of leadership could, can and should start at the state level and percolate up. For example, a couple years ago, Congress passed Right to Try. Um, that started in Arizona. At the, at the Goldwater Institute <laughs> yeah. in Arizona. And uh, state Darcy after Wilson. state started, yes. started passing it. Eventually, it gained enough momentum that something happened uh, at, at the federal level. So uh, I think it's too easy for people right away to look to Washington. I think they should engage their states much more. I think the idea of taking back our, our government or taking back our state and doing it through the, the election process is, is a worthwhile pursuit. So we actually have a comment online uh, from Dr. Rafael Fonseca from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, and they said that, um, that it was great and they appreciate telehealth reform because prior they had needed to have their patients travel, lose income for two days of wages, wages of caregivers, gas, meals, lodging, et cetera. And that's a, a thank you from a, from a resident and somebody out in the state. Uh, and to kind of close us, we had a question. Um, as you head into 2022, what are some of the lessons from the years that you've had in the public sector and now years... Uh, serving the folks of Arizona, what lessons are you bringing into this final year of your current term, and what do you think uh, that, that those lessons are going to inform you on? So let me first say to the good doctor from Mayor, we're proud that we have a, a, a Mayo Clinic in Arizona. We also have a, a Mayo Hospital. Of course, everybody knows the quality of care that you can receive at Mayo, but also being on the, the right side of, of solutions and being at the table and some of these stakeholder discussions have allowed us to expand things like telehealth, and now more citizens have the ability to access that standard of, of care, which is best in the world. In terms of lessons that, that I've learned, like I mentioned, I came from the private sector, and uh, a lot of people will say government should be run like a business. I'd push back a little bit on that. Government is not a business. Government can work at the speed of business, but there are business principles that can be applied to, to government. When I ran for office, I said that I built a business. Now I want to shrink a government and grow an economy. And uh, our, like I said, our economy's roaring in Arizona, but we have fewer people in the employ of government today than when we came into office. And we have a budget that's bursting at the seams, that it's its statutory maximum for the rainy day fund. And it really was that application of the principles. I mean, when you're the chief executive, you get to set the vision, chart the course, and pick the people. We put a plan out there that we ran on. Um, and I was proud when I ran in re-election. My opponent from 2014 said that this guy has done everything he said he was going to do for the people of Arizona. He didn't say it as a compliment, <laughs> but I was proud to hear him say that. And uh, I do think that's also how you build trust 
with individuals. It's, it's commitments made and commitments kept. I do think you see varying levels of degree across the nation. I think people were able to see that their governors were on the front lines and had to make some of these very tough decisions along the way. And you saw much more of a balance from the, the folks on, on my side of the aisle. But I think that being a governor is a great job. I have really enjoyed this position. COVID was a, a huge challenge and, and a test, and we addressed it as best we could. But on everything that we ran on in 2014 and applying those things of living within your means as a state, you know, spending less than you bring in, expecting the budget to be balanced, actually reforming your government, and if people don't want to get on line with the direction that you're bringing and the culture you're bringing, replacing leaders at the state agency level can make a, a real difference inside our government. I think sometimes we look to government for way too many answers to the problems and solutions. Government is a, a component of what makes this nation a, a great nation, but the, the larger component is the spirit of the American people, the entrepreneurial energy that we have inside of our uh, economy, our families, and the institutions uh, in our individual states. So I think it's on me to do the best I can as a leader at the government level, but also to make sure that I'm promoting and supporting the other institutions that make us the greatest place in the history of the world in which to live and that we protect that and defend it. If I had any admonition before I leave here today is I do see a real divide between those that are on the side of free market capitalism and those that believe in big government socialism. And I think we should start with that as the prism of so many of the policies and decisions, both at the state level and high stakes right now at the federal level. I think that's a good place to close. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks for coming.